Last class. Well, plus a final. Yay, yay or boo, but depending on your point of view. Okay. We have homework eight due today. You have observations due today. Um, if you're going to email me those, just get them to me before the end of the day. I'm going to try to get them. I'm going to try to grade those this weekend. So I'm hoping that when you come in, when you come in for the final, all your grades will be on WebCT. If everything, barring an emergency this weekend or something coming up, I hope that I will have all your grades in there. If you're looking at your grades right now, I want to apologize. If you look at them right now, they look really bad. I don't want to give everybody a heart attack. But what happened is a couple people did turn in the observations project and I was grading for another class, so I graded them all. So what that means is once I put one person's grade in, I had to put in a grade for everybody, which gave all the rest of you a zero on it for right now. That will be fixed when you get your grade. So I don't want you to have a heart attack, but that's why everybody's grades look unusually low. So I apologize for that. So don't worry. So that, that's what's going on there. Those grades will be fixed. Actually, I also had one person who turned the homework in early, and I also had another person who had to take the quiz early because they had to go to a funeral. So I had a couple, so there's a few extra points in there that you're going to get points for that will pull those grades way up. And those, most of those will go in today, and I'm hopefully have all the observer's notebooks rated by the end of the weekend. So when you come in Monday, the, in fact, what I'll do is I'll probably put the final exam in Monday so you know where you stand and what kind of points you need. So your grade might look bad again Monday, but it'll be because I haven't put the final exam in yet. But then you'll know, you know, you have this grade. Even if you get a zero on the final, you get this. So. But that, that's why everything is so bad right now, and I wanted to apologize for that. And then I meant to tell you yesterday, if you do follow your grades on WebCT, uh, once someone mentioned it to me, Hillary mentioned seeing it, that what is this 60 points for labs? That was my goof on the syllabus. I originally set up this, the labs to be 200 points, which is what I usually give them worth. We didn't do near 200 points worth of labs. We only did about 100, we did 130 points so far, with one more to go today makes 140. That left 60 points kind of out in limbo. So what I did is I made one fake lab and gave everybody 60 out of 60 on it. So it wasn't 60 extra credit points. It's not 60 extra, but it's, six, but it's a perfect score on six labs, essentially. So it helped you. It may have helped you by a percent or so in the final grade. But I didn't want to just leave it out, so I put that in there. So if you see a 60 out of 60 on a lab, that's what it is. That's the extra four labs that we should have done that I'll revise my syllabus properly for next time. But you get the benefit of it. So, okay. So that, and then the quiz will be later today too. So, okay. So, and then we have a final exam coming up on Monday. So, Monday morning, 9 o'clock. So, for you guys, it's not even like a other class has to wait a whole week. You get it out of the way. So, it's either good or bad. You get it out of the way and done with it. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Format is what I've already talked about. Format is half of the exam. There's true-false questions. There's a certain number, double about what you've been getting. The first half are from the previous exams. So, study your previous exams. The other ones are the new material. So, everything since exam four. So if you study those four exams, you're good for the first half. You don't need to go back to old lectures. You don't need to go back and read the book. You don't need to go back to the old homeworks. You don't need to worry about any of that. Just work on the exams. Then you can study the new material, only the new material. So, so while it is comprehensive, that should make it a lot easier for you to study. I hope. We'll see. Okay. Questions? Questions on that? Okay. Our last picture of the day for class. I'll show you, I'll show you whatever they put up on Monday anyway, but just to put one up there, but this is a lunar eclipse. So eclipsed moon in the morning here, 
and you can see the moon very faint. It's not a thin crescent moon. It's a full moon, but most of it is passed within the Earth's shadow. Now, this was not. This is an eclipse that occurred a few years ago. This was about three years ago, and this was taken in Iran. But the reason they're doing this picture is that there's actually a lunar eclipse tomorrow morning. If you're going to be leaving here after class and heading out to the west coast. Unfortunately, it's not visible from the eastern part of the United States. So, sorry, you've got about three more years to wait before we get a good one. I think it's 2014 before there's another nice eclipse in this part. But if you're heading out to, you know, Washington or Oregon or about that area, you'll actually get to see this early tomorrow morning. So, not this exact picture, obviously, but you'll get to see a, a nice lunar eclipse early in the morning. But not, not from here, unfortunately. But that's why we, they put the picture up for today, is that that is something that is coming. But sort of, you know, the whole eastern half of the United States, we get, well, we do get an eclipse. We get a penumbral eclipse, if you remember. There's the umbra, the real dark shadow, which is there. And there's the penumbra, which is a light shadow that you can't even tell. So, yes, with the moon, when you go out in early tomorrow morning, when you're up at 5 in the morning, yeah, I know. I'll be the only one. <laughs> when you're up at 5 in the morning looking at the moon, well, maybe some of you stay up later, too. You never know. But, <laughs> but when you go out there, like, the moon will be eclipsed. You just won't be able to tell because the penumbra is so much fainter that you can't tell. If you could make a measurement, you could, pro you could measure it. If you had a photometer that could detect how much light was coming from it, you could say it's a little bit less than it should be. But you wouldn't be able to see it. It wouldn't be the nice sight. You wouldn't be able to see it coming in and out of eclipse. That's going to happen. You've got to be a little further, a little further west. Even central U.S. will get to see some of it right at, as the moon is setting. But for us, by the time the moon is there, it'll be over. So, No luck for us this time. We've got another one coming in like 2014. There's not a good one for us in a little while now. But a pretty, pretty picture as well. You can't really see all of it projected up there, but there's some nice trees and some little scenery there too that you can see. So, questions? Nope? Okay. We're on to finish the last of the lecture then. We were looking on intelligent life in the galaxy and if there is any. So, let's see, right there. Now go back to the beginning. All right, so this is what we were looking at last time. We were, work we were working our way through Drake equation. And actually that's what we're doing for lab too. So we actually have a pen and paper lab and you've got to calculate things. I know. Got to end it that way since you've, you know, since everybody loves it so much. But you've got to remember the Drake equation is that nice easy one. You know, we started looking at it and it's just this number and you multiply all these things together and get your answer. There's no dividing, there's no squaring, there's no cube root, there's no logarithms, there's no nothing else. So it's just multiplying a bunch of numbers together. So what we had here, and this is where we finished up last time, was that we were saying that binary systems were not going to be very likely to have habitable planets. Because you're going to have times, you're going to have orbits, maybe an orbit around one star that might be stable, or maybe a big orbit around both stars, or maybe side of a figure eight orbit here. But nothing that's going to be really good and stable and likely most of the orbits with two or three stars tend to be unstable and the planet tends to get flung out into space or tends to get flung into, another, into the star or too close to the star and burns up. So we need a, the bet, we think the best bet is to look for planets around stars that are, that are all by themselves. And just to estimate that, what we're saying is that we think there's maybe one habitable planet for every ten out of ten planetary systems. Because the other thing you're going to get with these is you're going to get temperature differences. Now if you're going here, what's your temperature going to be like way over here 
as compared to when you're right in between these two stars. You know, right in between them, it's day all day, all, all day long. It's day all day long. You know, it's sun, sun's up all day long. One of the suns is up, one sets, the other rises. So it's going to be awful warm there. And you're also a lot closer to the stars, so it's going to be a lot warmer there. Here you're going to be much further away from both stars, and it's going to be a lot colder. So you're going to have big shifts in temperature. So you're going to go from, you know, in the course of a year, you can go from, you know, ice age to overheating to ice age and back and forth. It's not going to be a very stable area. It's not going to have a nice stable temperature as the Earth does. So when we're looking at the factors, you say maybe 1 in 10. That's still pretty good. 10% of them would possibly, 10% of the, there'd be one habitable planet out of every 10 possible systems. So not how many planets, but how many would be in the habitable, habitable area. Let's see if this is working now. There we go. Then come the questions. First of all, how does, how often, do, now we have, a, we have a habitable planet. If it's one out of ten, there's a lot of stars in the galaxy. That's a lot of stars that have habitable planets. We've now detected one more, right? We looked at that last time. There's actually one that's been detected, so a little bigger than the Earth, in a habitable zone. But now the big question is, how well does life actually arise on them? And that is a big question. Experiments, we looked at the Miller-Urey experiment. We said the possibility of forming life was very easy, was very easy, forming life-giving molecules was very easy, forming amino acids. But how do we get from there to a living creature? It's not just a little jump, it's a giant jump from forming the organic molecules, that's easy. How does it take? So you can be either very optimistic or very pessimistic on it. We're going to be optimistic and say one, it's easy. So if you, if you form that, so on those planets, then you form, if it's in the habitable zone, then everything works out, you're going to form life. So you say that's very likely. That's not necessarily the right value. You know, we might be the oddball that we formed life. You know, maybe 99.9% .9 of the planets don't form life, and instead of one, you know, it's one in a thousand, or one in a million, or one in a billion. That's not an unreasonable value for it either. All we're going by is experiment. And the experiments say we can make amino acids, we can make the building blocks very easily. But they don't say that we can create life. We don't know what, how, the easy that, how easy that is to occur. So, again, for right now, just say it's, say it's one. In fact, we're going to be really optimistic for this. We're going to go on the optimistic values because it's, it still doesn't end up being very good at the end. A uh, fraction of life-bearing planets where intelligence arises. Well, how many? We know of one. We, don't, we can't go out and statistically say, okay, out of these thousand planets that were habitable and that formed some kind of life, 38% of them have intelligence. You know, that's how the way you want to do things scientifically. You want to go get a big sample and say, okay, how many? We only have one. So are we the oddball or are we commonplace? We don't know. Again, there's a lot of speculations and opinions, but there's no way to scientifically test it. You can't, you know, can't do statistics on one, a sample of one. It doesn't work. So, again, we're going to be optimistic and say, okay, well, if you form the life, then we'll just say, yes, it naturally goes to intelligence. And say, yes, so it's one. So we're being very, very optimistic in these numbers. How about if the planet develops and uses technology? Well, we think the intelligent life would develop some kind of technology, but you know, we mentioned last time with the dolphin, you know, if dolphins, could you just form an intelligent civilization underwater that didn't, that did not have any other kind of, 
you know, techno didn't need technology or didn't use any other kind of technology. You know, we're using our own bias that we use technology, so well, certainly everybody else is going to. But is that necessarily right? And it's not. It's not necessarily. It seems, it seems logical to us, but then we're looking at it from our box here that says, you know, we need technology. We need our iPhones. We need our iPads. You know, we need all that stuff. How do we survive without them? You know, how did we survive, you know, when I was little and I tell my daughter, you know, I didn't have this, I didn't have, you know, you, you couldn't pause the TV so you can go to the bathroom. <laughs> you know, she has to get up, pause the TV for me. <laughs> but, you know, you can't, you couldn't do that. So, we don't know. We think it's very likely. We think it's likely. So we're going to continue being optimistic. So we're going with all these ones. Can't go more than one. So we're going optimistic and saying, yes, we form, we're going to give it a value of one. So we're going to say that, yes, all those, so all those planets, yes, they form life, they form intelligent life, and they form a technological society. So, did that for a reason. Because when you put those all in the equation we used, we said there's roughly 10 stars formed per year, and we multiply everything out, we get one. We're still one factor to go. We're not done. So when we multiply all these out, we said there were 10 stars, and then how many would have planets, and, civil, and how many planets would be habitable, and then the, whether life would evolve, and whether it would be intelligent, and whether it would be technological. So that means that how many civilizations there are now present in the galaxy depends on the lifetime of a technologically of a technological civilization. So we've been a technological civilization for 100 years. So if there were if that is typical, say 100 years is typical, that's it. You know, we're about done. If that's the case, then that would mean there would be 100 technological intelligent civilizations in the entire galaxy. Sounds like a decent number, but that's not very many because of how big our galaxy is. Your nearest one would still be many hundreds to thousands of light years away. And that would be the nearest one if there's only 100. And we've gone on very optimistic. You know, if those values are all 0.1 instead, you know, well, let's just make us do it easy. If just two of these are 0.1 and the other one's 1, then that brings it down to 1 and leaves us. Then you've got to go to another galaxy in order to find an intelligent civilization. But again, that's the number now present. So it doesn't mean there wouldn't have been life. It said there would have been others, but civilizations would, of course, rise and fall. There'd be lost civilizations. Civilizations would be gone, too. And the big question is, how long does that civilization last? By the definition that we're using for a technological society, we have been technological for a hundred years. Because when we say a technological society, we're saying something we could communicate with. So if we send a, a signal to a civilization that is you know, at our technological level of the 19th century, the 1800s, they can't receive the signal. They're not going, you know, they can't receive it. They have no way to detect it. They have no way to send a signal back. So, they might be progressing, but they wouldn't be a civilization we could communicate with. It's only been for the last hundred years that we've been able to communicate. And now we can't even use us as an example. You know, we know we've lasted for a hundred years, but again, is that a long time? Do most civilizations destroy themselves? You know, 20 years? In 20 years? Or 30 years? It's quite possible. That, you know, they could wipe themselves out shortly after developing that kind of technology. 
because about the same time we developed, what, radio communications was very similar to the time we developed atomic weapons. So, I mean, it's very easy that you could see a civilization that could develop all that and destroy itself in 10 or 20 years after that and be gone. So you wouldn't have a very long time. Or are we still in our infancy? You know, do we have a million years to go? Do civilizations typically last a million years or a billion years once they form? We have no clue. We have absolutely no clue on that last number. It's completely a guess. So what you can see, again, we were very, very optimistic on some of those. So if they're, if they're low, if one of those happens to be low, then the number of civilizations that we might have will drop very, very quickly. And there will not be, there might not be very many. So looking for life. If we go to a million years, let's go to the nice example. So let's just say a civilization lasts a million years. We're in our infancy. You know, we're only 100 years old. We've got a million years to go or 999,900 years to go. Then there means there would be a million civilizations in our galaxy. That's a lot. But our galaxy is big. That means the typical that means the next nearest civilization, they'd be an average. Obviously, two could be it's random, two could be close together, one could be all, you know, you don't know. But on average, they'd be a hundred light years apart. So our nearest neighbor, nearest intelligent neighbor, even if they last a million years, would be a hundred light years away. Average. And that means that any communication, if we want to talk to them, you know, we can send them a signal now in 2011 and then they send us a signal back and that's 2211 then we reply back and it's 2411 you know maybe if they have much longer lifespans than us that might be reasonable for them but for us you know you're waiting for several generations to get the response back and then sending you know another signal is another another several generations i mean you're taking a long time to communicate and that's going that's been extremely optimistic that's saying a million years that we're going to be here for another million years and that life forms very easily. All the life questions in the Drake equation, we said they were all one. So that once you get that planet that can form life, it does and it forms an intelligent civilization and it lasts for a million years. So, again, not very far apart. There's no, there, even if there's a lot of civilizations, the distances between in space are very large and difficult, difficult to diverse. We don't have any way to communicate you know, unless we come up with something. Now, maybe someday they'll come up with something like these neutrinos that they're working on that travel fast, apparently travel faster than light. And if you get something that goes faster than light, then this cuts down our numbers a little bit. But even those neutrinos that were traveling faster than light that they detected, they've got two experiments now, were only slightly over the speed of light. It wasn't like they were going three times the speed of light. They were going, you know, 1.002 times the speed of light, or 1.003 times the speed. It was some very small amount over. Okay. So, signal sent. We send. We sent. We send signals out in space. We've sent probes out in space, and this is the plaque from Pioneer 10, showing the Pioneer spacecraft in the background with human figures to the front. And then a number of other different things. There's our solar system here showing where we came from. So here's the little spacecraft. That's where it came from. There's all the different planets in the solar system done long enough ago that even Pluto's out there. So even little Pluto gets to be included on this because that was sent long before it changed. The little 
No, that's not some little googly eyes looking at you out there. It kind of looks like that. That's actually hydrogen molecule. And you have, you have hydrogen and you have hydrogen. And if you notice the little dots, one time they're pointing, the points are pointing towards each other and here they're pointing away. That's that hydrogen transition, 21 centimeters. So we're thinking that another alien civilization would be able to recognize that. You know, unless they're big into big googly-eyed cats or something or whatever those little things are that they look. You know, they might see it as that. But that's something that is, the diagram there is universal. Most things that you try to send don't necessarily have any, most things that we could send don't have any kind of meanings. You know, they sent the one out with Voyager where they had recordings. You know, the, whoever was the president at the time had a recording and other different leaders. And, but that's going to have no meaning to another civilization that's going to be able to understand any of the languages of Earth any more than we would be able to understand theirs. Here we're trying to do things in binary and in picture form that would be much easier to communicate. So a hydrogen atom being very common is hopefully something that you can understand. This last one, this little kind of rays here, are centered from the Earth and what it is, it's identifying all the different, the number of different pulsars. So it's actually a bunch of different pulsars, how far they are away from the Earth and their rotational periods. So we think that's something else. It's all, again, all encoded in binary that you might be able to decipher. But that's all that kind of information. So again, it's all telling everybody where we are. And Pioneer 10 is now out beyond the edge of the solar system, but it's got, what, another 10 or 20,000 years before it can actually get to another star. So I mean, it's traveling, it's out there, it's out past, it's past all the planets, it's well out of the solar system, it's left. but it's not going to get, even at the relatively fast speeds it's traveling now, it's still not going to get near anything in the relatively near future. Unless there are other little alien spaceships, you know, closer in, you know, observing our solar system or something that happened to detect it. But if they're that good, then they don't need this to learn about us. So. Okay, so that's one way to communicate, but a very slow method. That takes a long time to send something out there into space. We also communicate by radio. And we communicate intentionally. You know, we send signals out. The Arecibo telescope, that big giant radio telescope in Puerto Rico, has sent signals out to some stars, you know, certain messages out. But we also communicate indirectly. And what's shown here is that if you were outside and looking at the Earth, and you watched just as the Earth rotated, you'd get bursts of signals depending on what part of the Earth was rising or setting, you know, as it was coming up over the horizon or sinking below the horizon. So, where does most of our broadcast come? Well, look where the strong ones are. There's the north coast, uh, or the east coast of North America. So, you got New York and all the broadcast stations there, you get a very strong radio signal when the east coast of the U.S. rises, east coast of North America. There's the west coast, there's Europe, Australia and Japan a little bit, you could actually map out where the signals are coming from. But what you'd see if you were doing this is you'd actually essentially see a little pulsar, a pulsar, little bursts coming from the Earth. So you'd actually detect a little bit more energy at certain times, but it would be on a very regular period because it's every time the Earth spins around once. So every 23 hours and 56 minutes, the Earth spun around once, so the East Coast is going to be rising again and coming above the horizon or going below and you'll get more or less signal. But we're constantly sending this signal out. This has been being sent out something similar to that for well, almost close to a hundred years now. 
But again, it's not an intentional one. It's just automatically going out. Just all the carrier signals from all of these, all these different broadcast stations as they go through. So wherever there's more, wherever there's less, you know, when you're talking here, you're out in the Pacific because there's Australia and Japan. You're not getting a whole lot of signals. Even through the middle of North America, you know, there's the West Coast, but you get the lot on the east, and then when you get down towards the Midwest, towards the west, and the plains and the Rocky Mountains, you don't get a whole lot. Now, if we want to deliberately broadcast signals, problem is radio spectrum's real big. We got a lot of different areas. Where are you going to send the signal? Because you got to be tuned. You got to have somebody else tuned to the right station to hear it. You know, if you broadcast it at this frequency and they're listening at this frequency, you don't hear it. You've got to be listening. At the, you've got to pick out an area where you think is going to make the more sense. And hopefully what makes sense to us makes sense to another civilization. Now what the graph is showing here is, a little messy graph, yes, but it shows what the noise looks like in the, ba- in the background of the galaxy. So you have our galaxy has some at very low frequencies, very, very long wavelengths. There's a lot of noise in the galaxy. So it gets very noisy and it gets very bright in terms of radio waves. So we can't, you wouldn't want to send a signal out here at the lowest frequencies because the galaxy is too bright. When you get down here, it gets very bright because you start to get a lot more of the emissions of some of the molecules, oxygen and water over here. So again, the sky gets very bright in the radio in those regions. Right in between, there's a gap where it gets down as low as it can. This, that's the cosmic microwave background. That's the Big Bang. So when you get down to the minimal, minimal amounts are right in here. That's when the background of the galaxy is the lowest. So we think that's probably the best area to look. And one that we use is what we call the water hole. The water hole right here is just the area between emission of hydrogen and emission of OH, hydroxyls. Because if you put the two together, H and OH makes H2O and is water. So it's sort of the water, water hole. The background is, minning, mi- is minimal there, and that's a good place that we've been listening and broadcasting. So we send specific signals out there at that wavelength to stars that we think might be likely candidates, and we listen. There are more, listening's easier, doesn't require as much work. It's very easy to just, you know, pick out a hundred different stars and just have a radio telescope that just goes and searches all those stars and listens for signals, just goes through all of them as they come up. Only problem with that is that's real nice and easy, but if there's a billion civilizations out there and they're all doing the same thing, you've got to have somebody sending a signal too. You've got to have a signal sent out to detect. So if everybody's sitting there and listening, it's still a quiet conversation. But this is the area where we've been looking, called the water hole. Again, it's between the, the hydrogen and the hydroxyl, the OH molecules. And that's one area that we've been looking very closely for signals. What would we find? Well, there's one of the telescopes that's been used. That's that Green Bank one, Green Bank Radio Telescope. And it's been used to search for signals. And here's what you would find. It's a simulation. It's not a real signal. But normally when you detect it, you'd get all sorts of just random dots. On the screen here, you just get random, random signals. When you get some sort of so coherent pattern within this radio signal that's up at the top, when you get some kind of some sort of coherent pattern, you'd get actually like a line or a streak through it. That would be a sign of that there's some kind of, civili- some kind of civilization there. Nothing's been found as of yet.
So we have not found any sort of sign of any kind of extraterrestrial intelligence. So for right now, we're, we're it. You know, we have us. If we consider us intelligent, some can argue that. Yeah. Yes, sir. In the 60s, they got the signal that they thought was, or for a while, was intelligent. That was the pulsars. But because they, they got a very regular signal, and they did get a signal like this that came up as something very regular. But it turns out that was what turned in, turned out to be the pulsars. So, so whether there is any other life out there, again, this, don't, this only precludes that we haven't detected any other intelligent life. There still could be, you know, you know, everyone else in the galaxy could be back in the 15, 16, 1700s relative to our technology, and we still never detect them. You know, we have no way to communicate with them. Or everybody's well beyond us and doesn't want to talk with the little backward Earth, right? You know, you never know. <laughs> All right. So, finish up here. End of chapter 18. <coughs> Goodness, I didn't think we'd ever get to the end. Or did we just start yesterday? I don't know. Seems like both. Just go through the quick summary here. The history of the universe, divided into phases. We talked about particles. We talked about galaxies. We talked about stars. We talked a little bit about planets. That was most of the course. In fact, ours, we concentrated on galaxies and stars in this course. And then this last chapter, we've looked a little bit about the biological, chemical, and cultural. And that's what we're calling cosmic evolution. We gave up a definition of what, what do we consider a living organism. It's got to be able to react, grow, reproduce, and evolve. That makes a very simple definition, something very easy to determine what we consider a living organism. Amino acids, we looked at the Miller-Urey experiment, and it was very easy to form the amino acids. The building blocks of life were very easy to form. So we think that life can form very easily. Again, we can't reproduce, we can't reproduce, we can't get that little, you know, we get the little soup there and we get the little soup of all the organic molecules, but we can't go from there to a little amoeba coming up and waving, hi, I'm here, you know. So we can't get that jump. We don't know how easy it is to make that jump. We said in our Drake equation that it was one. You know, is it one in a million? You know, are we the oddball case? And that is quite a possibility as well. But those amino acids didn't just form on Earth, but we also found them out in space, in molecular clouds, comets, meteors, asteroids. So we can find them all over the place. They're very easy to form, not just on Earth, but elsewhere in the, in the solar system and in the universe as well. Within the solar system, we tend to look at the best possibilities that might harbor life. And again, it would be a single-celled type life, most likely. It would be Mars that had liquid water on it at some point in the past, Europa, Moon of Jupiter, and Titan, the Moon of Saturn. Those are three areas that seem like the best possibilities to look at for life on life in the solar system. In order to estimate, but again, we haven't detected anything on any others. The Drake equation we can use to detect the total number of t civilizations in the galaxy. So nice equation. Tells us how many intelligent civilizations there are in the entire galaxy. All you got to do is plug the numbers in. The big problem is we don't know the values for the numbers. So Nice equation. We're going to work with it a, brief, a little bit in lab today just to give you a chance to do a couple of calculations on it. 
and get some numbers. But the problem is we know the first couple numbers pretty well. We can get a pretty good guess on the star formation in the galaxy. We can even do pretty good on the planets and maybe on the habitable planets. We can get a relatively good estimate. But when it comes to those last few, it's very uncertain. And we went very optimistically and we still found out we've got you know, a couple hundred light years or you know, hundreds of light years away for the nearest civilization, even if we go on optimistic, area, optimist, opt, optimistic assumptions. Finally, as I showed you, I showed you the probe we sent out, the, the plaque on the probe. They've also sent out you know, a, a gold record or something. You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't a regular vinyl one that would have gotten destroyed in space. space. <laughs> I don't know. It was sent out in the 70s. So. I think I'm trying to remember, but I think it was. I think Nixon was was Nixon the president at the time when they put everything together. I'm thinking, yeah, but I don't remember exactly when it was launched. But I think I'm thinking that was. But I'd have to look it up to be sure. But we sent that out. But again, it's going to take it tens of thousands of years to get to another civilization. You know, unless they're coming looking for it. And you can imagine talking about how empty space is. You can imagine trying to find a little tiny spacecraft. You know, weaving through space. It's not going to be something that's going to be easy for someone to find. But that we've included the information there if it does happen to get detected. And then we send out signals. We send out radio signals. We leak them all the time, constantly. And they would be able to be detected. You, know, you detect a variation. You have to have very sensitive equipment because you know, we looked at them close. But when you're looking from many, dis- from many distant stars, you'd have to look through all the noise and try to be able to detect them. But there is 24-hour, really 23-hour, 56-minute periodic variation. And then where we might want to look is the water hole. That's right right around the hydrogen and the hydroxyl frequencies, H and OH, making water. And that's a good place to broadcast and to look for messages. So, done with chapter 18. Yay! Done with with lecture. All right. So, let me see. We have a few minutes. I'm going to go ahead. I have one video to do that I wanted to do. In fact, it's usually one of the first things I do in the class. You guys get it at the end. So I think the other class got it at the beginning. It's not specifically astronomy related. This is actually more of a, it's actually a video, it's about, about nine minutes long. It's a video about, an, it's, an, it's an artist, but it's an artist who does a lot of science. I usually do it as an introduction, but I'm going to go ahead and since I've got a few minutes left and then I just have to give you the quiz and then take break for lab and the lab should not be that long today. So I'm going to go ahead and play it right now. But this is an artist from out in California, but when you look at his art in his studio, you'll see it's all very strongly based in, in science. Not specifically astronomy, but any kind of science. And I always thought it was kind of interesting. Usually it's one of the things I start the class with, but I'm going I'm to let you guys end with it. Let me...